second grade can be dismissed to children's church. For the rest of you, uh, open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. If you didn't bring a Bible and you're using one of those pew Bibles, it's on page 683, Isaiah chapter 9. We continue our study in Isaiah. Today we come to one of the, uh, I know I always say this, but really, one of the greatest passages in the book of Isaiah. A very famous passage, uh, an amazing text uh, that that really is astounding in its, not only in its meaning, but also in its uh, prophetic impact. Um, Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called... Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over His kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, we give you all the glory and praise this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to gather in your name freely, to gather in this place, to have this beautiful sanctuary to meet in, Lord. But more than that, to have the beautiful Savior to worship. We thank you, Jesus, that you died for us, that because of your blood shed on the cross, my sins have been washed away, that because of what you did for me, I can stand before the Father without any fear, with total confidence. And so we love you. We thank you that you've made us your children, that you've adopted us into your family, that you've justified us, you have counted us as if we have never sinned, even though we have. You look at us as though we are totally innocent through the blood of Christ. And so we worship you for our salvation. We do look around, Lord, at this world, and it is broken. We look at our lives, we see so many problems. But we give thanks that our names are written in heaven. And that the the struggles and trials of this world are nothing compared to the glory and joy that awaits us in the kingdom of God. And so I pray that as we uh, study this text this morning, Jesus, that you would show up in our hearts. That you would show us who you are. that, That we might see Christ so clearly this morning through this text. That we might see his beauty, his majesty, his tenderness and his strength. That his glory might be before us. We know, Lord, that we have many struggles and trials in this life, but we believe that there is one answer given by God, and His name is Jesus. So help us to see the answer, not the problems. 
Help us to see the light in the midst of the darkness. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. God's light can penetrate the thickest darkness. No matter how gloomy things are, the glory of God's brightness can shine even into the darkest gloom. Even when the the rubble of life is upon us, like a person uh, trapped in a building after an earthquake, and maybe they're trapped under all that rubble, and they can't move, and they can't see anything because it's dark. Even when life collapses on us like that, God's light can find its way in to shine in the darkest, darkest times. And that's what I think this text is all about today, the light of God overcoming the darkness in Isaiah 9. Uh, Because when Isaiah gave this prophecy, it was a very dark time for the people of Israel. It was pitch black. The, The curtains had dropped. It was a time of desperation, of uncertainty. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. Uh, Now, this text has a lot of place names and a lot of uh, locations that we're probably not familiar with. So let me do this. What I'd like to do is just quickly paint for you a portrait of the historical situation in which this prophecy was given. So we'll do a little bit of history here. But out of this, we're going to see what specifically this text is talking about. And I think when you understand the historic context of this passage, it just comes to life in an amazing way. So take out your sermon notes for a minute, and let me try to describe to you why things were so bad at the time this prophecy was given. What was the darkness that had fallen over the people? Why was this prophecy so important? If you look at Isaiah, in front of the sermon notes where it says Isaiah, you'll see a map on there. We've seen this map before over the past couple Sundays. Uh, I call this my satellite photo of Israel. And you'll, uh, what this is, this is a map of a war that took place in 734 B.C. So you, can, you may want to write that on the top. This is 734 B.C. Historians call it the Syro-Ephraimite conflict, but that's not so important. Basically what happened in this war is the Arameans and the Israelites joined forces to attack the people of Judah in the south. That's what that arrow means. And the circle around Jerusalem signifies that they besieged Jerusalem, though unsuccessfully. And as Judah was being attacked by its northern neighbors, unprovoked, the Philistines and the Edomites from the uh, west and the uh, southeast were pecking away at them too. So this was the the crisis that took place. Now in the midst of this crisis, Isaiah was speaking. And Isaiah was saying, trust God. This is the basic message. If you want to summarize the message of Isaiah's chapter 7 through chapter 9, basically one message, trust God. That was the whole message. Don't worry, God's going to deliver you. God's going to bring you through this darkness. And in fact, uh, he went to King Ahaz of Judah, and Isaiah said to the king, Trust God. Don't worry. God's going to rescue you. But uh, as we know from history, did King Ahaz trust God? No, he did not. In fact, he trusted someone else. Instead of looking to God for his help, he turned to another source for his rescue and salvation. Now, any of you who are here, do you remember who, who it was? Assyrians. Anyone say Assyrians? Just raise your head. You look smart. Um, yeah, the Assyrians. Uh, the Assyrians were... They're, well, they're not on this map, but if you, met, you see this map, you see Palestine. Now kind of imagine a bigger map, and over here is the Tigris-Euphrates River. This is what would be northern-day Iraq. 
This is where the Assyrian Empire was centered. And the Assyrian Empire was a mega empire. They were huge, powerful, voracious. You know, these were just little kind of piddly podunk nations. The Assyrians were a monstrous nation. And they were conquering pretty much whoever they could get their hands on is who they were conquering at that time. And King Ahaz, rather than trusting God, sent messengers and gold and silver over to the Assyrians. He said, help me. Come rescue me. I'll be your servant. I'll do whatever you say. Just, uh, we'll be your uh, slave nation. Just come and rescue me from my enemies. Of course, the king of Assyria, who was, uh, had a program of conquest at that time, uh, took him up on the offer gladly and m- rolled his, uh, his armies in to Palestine so that by 732 B.C. he had absolutely conquered the whole of Palestine. He put it under his power. So if you look at the map on the next page, it's not as good as the other map, but, you know, I'm sorry. I mean, I, I couldn't get that satellite photo. What you see here, this is a map. If you want to write a number on top of this, write 732 B.C. This is two years after the front map. This is what Palestine looked like after the king of Assyria rolled his troops through it. Everything you see in gray is now an Assyrian province. That's what happened. Everything you see in gray except for the Dead Sea down there, that's just a sea, but everything else is an Assyrian province. The things in white, like Judah, Israel, Ammon, Moab, those were, they're still free nations, but they were now subject to the Assyrians and had to pay them tribute in gold and silver. The rest became Assyrian provinces. So what I want you to see is that the Arameans in the north from the front map are now just Assyrian real estate. That's it. And Israel, who had rebelled uh, and attacked uh, Judah, they were now chopped in half. You'll see the southern half of Israel was still somewhat free, but you know Assyria put their own king on the throne. They killed the other king, and now Israel is just kind of a puppet nation. And then where you see it says Megiddo, that was the um, Assyrian uh, district of Megiddo is what it was renamed. And that was the other half of Israel. So half of Israel now became Assyrian property and was ruled directly by the kingdom of Assyria. So this was this is a horrible defeat. Even for the nations that were free, that didn't get conquered, they're still conquered because now they have to, you know, uh, kiss up to Assyria and pay them money and, you know, not get them mad. Now go back to uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. Switch from the History Channel here back to the text. This, now see if this text doesn't make more sense. And keep that, that map in your hand. It says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, do you know where Zebulun and Naphtali are? They are basically where it says the word Megiddo on this map. So Isaiah is speaking specifically to that situation. Um, where the, we see a little star, it says Megiddo on the map. That's kind of where Zebulun was. And Naphtali was more up along where it says Galilee of the nations. That whole area was Zebulun and Naphtali. So he says, yeah, in the past that was humbled, but in the future he will honor, then he names three places, Galilee of the Gentiles, by the way of the sea, along the Jordan. And those are three names for basically the same place, Zebulon and Naphtali. It's just different ways of saying the same area. So if you look at your map again, you'll see where it says Galilee of the nations. This was uh, the Sea of Galilee there. It's also along the sea, along the Sea of Galilee, and it's also along the Jordan which you'll see the Jordan River coming down. So uh, all that to say that Isaiah was speaking to a people who had just been conquered. 
Now, doesn't chapter uh, 9, verse 1 make a lot more sense? It just comes alive. You can see specifically what Isaiah was preaching to. A people who had been crushed by the Assyrian armies. Talk about darkness. Talk about gloom. To have your country just roll... I mean, we have a hard time imagining what this would be like. To have uh, your country totally taken over by a hostile foreign power. I mean, you know, people are killed. Uh, families are broken up. Children are lost. Homes are burned. I mean, this was darkness. This was, was gloom, if there ever was one. But it wasn't just an external gloom. It wasn't just a, spirit, a, a, a military and political gloom. Underneath it was also a spiritual and moral darkness. In other words, the reason that this happened to the people of Israel, the reason this external blanket of darkness came down on them, was because there was a darkness in their hearts. That's the other thing I want you to see here. Is that this happened because they had disobeyed God. Because the Israelites had said, no God, we're not going to follow you, we're going to follow the idols, we're not going to trust, uh, we're not going to trust you, we're going to trust the other nations, we're going to break your laws. Because they had turned away from God in their hearts, the external military and political darkness came down as a consequence. I look back at chapter 9, verse 1. It says, In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, who's the he? It's God, not the king of Assyria. Even though God used the king of Assyria, but the answer is God. God's the one who humbled them. So that the, the political and military darkness that came upon this region was a consequence of the spiritual and moral disobedience and darkness of the people's hearts. God was punishing them for their sins. And so this is the darkness we're talking about. This is the gloom, uh, both external and internal. But the message of Isaiah 9 is that God's light can penetrate any darkness. That God's light can break through even when you're buried underneath a pile of rubble and the rubble is from the own stupid choices that you made. Even when you're in that situation, God's light can shine into you and God can make His dawn break forth in the darkest night. And so he says in chapter 9, verse 1, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. God could have washed His hands of the whole thing. He could have said, I'm done with you, Israel. But instead, God's going to, in grace and mercy, cause His light to shine. In the past, He humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future... He will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. Verse 2, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. God is going to cause His light to shine into the, the blackness and the, the despair and the hopelessness of this situation. Notice uh, God talks about it a little bit more in verses 3 through 5. He talks about a great reversal that's going to take place as God takes them from darkness to light. It says in verse 3, You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. So they were in despair and sorrow and weeping and grief and depression, but now God is going to take them and bring them to a place of joy and rejoicing and celebration and happiness. Verse 4, look at this reversal. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. So when this light shines, God's not only going to take them from despair to joy, He's going to take them from oppression to freedom. And then verse 5, 
Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. So war is the present experience, but in the future it's going to be peace and harmony. So there's a great reversal taking place. God says, yeah, I know you're in darkness now, but I'm going to cause my light to shine. And when my light shines, you're going to go from darkness to light, from grief to rejoicing, from uh, oppression to freedom, and from war to peace. It's it's awesome. And then in verse 6, God tells us how He's going to bring about this change. So what is God's plan? I mean, yeah, this sounds great. Wow, it would be great if God could do that. So what's He going to do? What's His strategy? How can God bring about such a a huge um, cataclysmic reversal of fortunes for the people of Israel? And we get the answer in verse 6. What is the light specifically that God is going to shine that's going to change their situation? Verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. God's plan for bringing light and salvation to His people is a child. A specific son to be born. A specific human being who's going to be born. A child. Now, stop and think about this for a minute. You know, because if you're like me, I've read these verses before. I've heard them in the Messiah. You know, for us the child is born. You know, we know all these words. And Even if you've never read Isaiah before... There's a good chance you've probably heard this line, to us a child is born, to us a son has been given. Uh, so, uh, you know, when you hear something a lot, you're kind of familiar with it, you don't really think about it. But, you know, stop and think for a minute. God's plan is a kid. Like, you know, what? That's your plan? That, that's your big idea, God, is a baby? You know, a birth announcement? I was trying to think about some kind of parallel to this, and this is kind of, I don't know if this works or not, but I thought it was kind of cool. Imagine if Donald Rumsfeld held a press conference, and all the cameras are on him, and behind him are all the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and, you know, General Sanchez, or whoever's in, all those guys over in charge over there, and they're all standing behind him, you know, and he's up there, and he says, well, I know that we've had a difficult go here in Iraq, and there's been a lot of concerns, but I'm here to unveil a new plan. A plan that will guarantee the cessation of hostilities in Iraq, a plan that will make armies no longer necessary in Iraq. In fact, when we implement this plan, we're going to pull all of our troops out because it's going to be peace over there. All of those people who are stirring up trouble will be gone, and the people of Iraq will be filled with happiness and joy. And you, know, you can imagine the, the press corps you know, kind of like, well, what's he talking about? Well, what is this plan? I mean, what are you going to do? And Rumsfeld says, the plan is... We're going to have a baby! You know? That's the plan? We're going to have a baby? What are you talking about? I mean, it's like Isaiah's like, to us a child is born. It's like, Isaiah, have you been to northern Israel? Have you seen it up there? It's a mess. That place has been trashed by the Assyrians. And have you seen Assyria? Boy, they've got a lot of chariots, armies. You think you're going to reverse the situation with a baby? And not only that, what about the darkness in our hearts? The people of Israel have been disobedient to God for all these centuries. They keep uh, being stiff-necked and stubborn. How are you going to change that with a baby? I mean, a baby's great. There's nothing wrong with a baby. But, you know, a baby? A child? Well, this is no ordinary baby. This is no ordinary child. Look at this child, verse 6. 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There's two things about this child, generally speaking, that that stand out in this verse. The first thing I notice about this child is, it's not just any child, this is a royal child. This is a ruler. This is a king-to-be. The government will be on his shoulders. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's thrones. This is going to be a son of David, a descendant of David. And over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. This is not just going to be a king. This is going to be maybe the greatest ruler in all of human history. To be able to establish an everlasting kingdom with justice and righteousness. I mean, it sounds too good to be true. It almost sounds like a fairy tale. Like, wow, that's some kind of king. But not only is this child going to be a king. Notice the second thing about this child. Look at his name in verse 6. And he will be called... And then we get four, different, four distinct names. I know sometimes it's, uh, some translations have given us five names. It really is four. It's four pairs of names. The first name is Wonderful Counselor. Or that might be translated something like the one who counsels wonders. Uh, and the word wonder there is specifically a miraculous deed. So it's, it's the guy who can counsel miracles. And and typically in the Old Testament, this word is applied to God. Only God can counsel miracles. Only God can do miracles. Look at his second name. Mighty God. Mighty God is his name. Everlasting Father, his third name. this, This is a distinct name that's only applied to God. And then the Prince of Peace. Now what's significant about naming someone is that in Hebrew culture and in Old Testament culture, when God would name people when a special name would be given, the name wasn't just random. It meant, uh, it signified the essence and nature of the person named. You know, when we name people today, when people have kids, they kind of pick a name. They're like, well, I like that name. And I, I saw that name on, you know, this one guy in Survivor had the name. I thought it was really cool. So, you know, that's what we decided to name our kid. Or, you know, people name kids today because they kind of like a name. Maybe it has some family meaning. But that back then, when God named somebody, it wasn't just because God thought the name was cool. He was signifying something about the essential nature and character of the one named. So when God changes Abram's name from Abram to Abraham which means the father of many nations. He wasn't just giving him a cool name. wasn't just giving him an extra syllable. He was saying, you are now going to be the father of many nations. And when God changed Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel, he was giving him a new identity. So for God to give these names, he's not just kind of giving some catchy names. He's saying, this is who the child is. He's giving his identity. That's what naming means in Hebrew culture. So what is his name? Or in other words, who is this child? He's wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. Not just his name is, but really, he is mighty God. He's everlasting father, prince of peace. This is an astounding verse. I mean, do you understand what this is, what we have in our hands here? Seven centuries before the birth of Christ... Isaiah prophesies that there will be a child, a human child born, who will be a royal descendant of David, who will also be God in human flesh. 
Seven centuries before the birth of Christ, this prophecy is given. This is so astounding. I mean, this is, it's an amazing thing and and scholars who, who reject the deity of Christ and who aren't Christians, I mean, they, they try to you know, backpedal and find a way around this, and, and their explanations are quite lame. I mean, I, mean, I could, you know, if you want to hear them sometime, I could tell you. I mean, they, they don't make much sense, because it's just such an amazing verse. It's like right there in black and white. One of the criticisms of Orthodox Christianity uh, is, is that this idea that Jesus was God is kind of a you know a crazy idea. People say, well, Jesus can't be God. He was a human being. He was a good rabbi. He was a teacher. One of the, the theories that's often put forward is that Jesus was kind of this really good rabbi, revolutionary, but over centuries, his followers kind of made a legend about him. And, you know, over several hundred years, they began to say, well, he wasn't just a good teacher. He was God. And so, you know, there's kind of the evolutionary theory of how Christians came to believe Jesus was God, which doesn't bear itself out in history, but, you know, that theory is out there. And as, as Christians move from Judaism to Greek philosophy, that they began to think of Jesus as God. But that's not the case. Here we have a prophecy from 700 years before the birth of Christ, and it wasn't penned by Plato or Socrates. It was penned by a Jewish prophet. In fact, the greatest of all the prophets, Isaiah. So this is an amazing text where, where we have such a clear prophecy. You know, some prophecies about the future kind of fuzzy, hard to understand. This is one of those really clear ones where God lets us know that His plan is to give us a human divine child, a royal um, God, a, a divine king, a heavenly sovereign. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So make no mistake about it. Isaiah understood this king as an eternal person who would start a kingdom and reign forever, which gels with what he was saying in verse 6, that this is in fact God in human flesh. So God's plan is to give us a child, but it's not just any child, it's a royal, divine child. It's a heavenly king. And 700 years after the prophecy was spoken, the answer to the prophecy was given. The fulfillment was delivered. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he, lay, he was laid in a manger. A child was born. He was there in Bethlehem. And this little child was worshipped and honored from his very birth as the wise men came and the shepherds came and they knelt before him because this was God in human flesh, the king that God had promised. So look at Matthew chapter 4. Let's look to the New Testament. Because this passage in Isaiah 9 is quoted in Matthew chapter 4. Look on page 958 in your pew Bible. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Look at the fulfillment of this uh, prophecy. Matthew 4.12. Uh, just a little context. This is... Jesus begins His public ministry in Matthew 4.12. He's uh, uh, been baptized. He's gone through the desert. And now He enters the promised land, so to speak. He begins His public ministry. It says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, that's John the Baptist, He returned to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, He went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake, by the sea, in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali. Now, quick, go back to your map again. Look on the map at the back. 
In the very back, there's another map. Kind of went crazy with the maps here. Uh, this is a blow-up of the Sea of Galilee, kind of a, a zoom. So, so if you look on the second map, you'll see a little dark circle there. That's the Sea of Galilee. Now imagine you're zooming in. That's what you're seeing on the back map. And there's Galilee, and there's Capernaum at the top. See the little arrows going up to it? That's where Jesus made his residence, right there on the Sea of Galilee. And so what's significant is, is that he starts his public ministry, the light starts shining from Jesus in the very place where the prophet predicted, in the very place where the darkness first came, now the light is shining. So going back to Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake, in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Jesus is the light. You know, last week, uh, if you are here last Sunday, we talked about the idea of the Bible as God's Word, that it's His inspired Word, that this truly is the Word of God. It's not just a, another religious book. And, uh, you know, here's one for instance of how we know that this is God's Word. I mean, it doesn't get more amazing than this to see a prophecy fulfilled 700 years later in that kind of accuracy and detail. But wait, there's more. Look at verse 17. It gets even better. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. And then here in verse 17, what we have is, this is basically, it's a summary of Jesus' overall message. It's not everything Jesus taught, but it's kind of like a, a summary statement at the beginning of a paper. Here's a summary of Jesus' whole message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Isn't that amazing? Because what, who was the Savior in Isaiah 9? He was a royal king. And Jesus comes preaching a kingdom. And who also was He in chapter 9? He was God in human flesh. So this isn't just any kingdom. This is the kingdom of heaven. Or as it says in some of the other Gospels, the kingdom of God. So why was Jesus preaching about the kingdom of God, that it's near? I would argue that it's because Jesus was near. That Jesus Himself was that heavenly King. He was that divine ruler. And wherever Jesus was, the kingdom of God was there. And as Jesus stood there, He'd say the kingdom of God is near. That's another way of saying it. it's right here in your very midst. I am here. God in human flesh, the King, had finally arrived. So repent. Believe in Me. Jesus is God's answer to the darkness of this world. God has given a very specific, concrete, individualized singularity of an answer. Jesus Christ. That's God's answer to the darkness in this world. And I think that's important because when we think about you know, when we're overwhelmed by the problems of this world and we turn on the evening news and we see the litany of things taking place and we kind of go, oh, I can't believe it. And we think, well, what can be done to change this? Our minds typically think of generalities. We think of big things. We think, well, you know, the solution to all this in the world is more tolerance. Or the solution to all this in the world is, you know, more love or more harmony. Or if we do think of something concrete, it's usually big things. You know, we say like, you know, the UN 
needs to get involved, or that NATO needs to become involved. There needs to be more diplomacy between nations. We, we think in, in terms of the large and the, the great, in terms of generalities and abstractions, but God's solution is very specific and very concrete. God's solution is a specific person named Jesus. Not love in general, but Jesus in particular. Not harmony in general, but Jesus in particular. That is how God is going to bring about those things. And again, it's not wrong to work for harmony and love and to, to, to try for peace among nations and diplomacy. All that's good. It's wonderful. But I think we have to recognize that those kinds of actions are merely stemming the tide. The only solution to the darkness of the world is when the king comes back. That's going to be the solution when the king returns. Or to put it another way, the secret to world peace is the second coming of Jesus Christ. When Christ comes again, then it will be accomplished. Because only He is the Prince of Peace when He comes to establish His kingdom. But it's not just the external darkness. It's also the darkness in my heart. The Bible's very clear that I'm a sinner. My wife is very clear that I'm a sinner. Uh, people who know me are very clear that I'm a sinner. I am a sinful and broken man. And you are sinful and broken people. There's none of us who can stand before God and, and hold some kind of uh, good track record or report card that would be good enough for God. All of us deserve judgment and punishment. All of us deserve the eternal darkness of hell. But God has provided an answer for that too. It's the same answer. Jesus. The external darkness and the internal darkness have the same solution. God has given Jesus Christ. And again, when I think about the weaknesses in my life of which there are legion, when I think about the sins in my life of which there are thousands, it seems, over the course of my life, you know, I, I think of big ideas again. I think of abstractions. You know, I need to, to try harder. I need to make a new resolution. Maybe a self-help book or something like that. Or even when we start talking about religion, it's again general. It's very, it's very broad. You know, we say, I, I need more spirituality in my life. You know, that, that's, that would help me. So I need to become more spiritual. Like, you know, what does that mean? But, but we, we're comfortable with generalities. Or even if we name specific religions, we talk about them as if they're all true. We say, well, you know, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Shinto, Christianity. I mean, they're all the same. They're all going to the same God. They're all going to the same place. So just as long as you're involved in something... That's the important thing. Again, we make generalities, but that's not what God has done. God is very specific. He named a specific person, Jesus Christ. And Jesus was very uh, narrow-mindedly specific. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. So even for the sin that I have in my life, I don't need more spirituality, I don't need more religion, I don't need more church. I need specifically Jesus Christ, who specifically died for me on that cross as the way to deal with the darkness of sin in my own heart. We need to repent and believe specifically in Christ. You know, uh, sometimes people say, I've heard it said, Jesus' message was mostly about love. You know, that's what Jesus taught on more than anything else is love. I don't think that's true. I, mean, I'd be interested, I haven't really done an actual count of what he taught on, but, but if I were to summarize Jesus' message, it wouldn't be love, even though he certainly taught about love, and you know, Jesus is you know, pro-love, or however you want to put it. But um, I mean, the fact that he even is here is an act of love from God. But I would say that if you look at Jesus' teaching, I think the best summary of his message isn't love, it's believe in me. 
You look through the Gospels, that seems to be the overwhelming message of the Gospels. It's not just love, it's believe in Christ, specifically. And so Christ calls us to repent and believe because the kingdom of heaven is near. So I would just ask you, do you have Christ? Have you believed specifically in Him? Do you know for certain that Christ is your Savior? The same Jesus Christ who lived 2,000 years ago, that same specific person, not the Spirit of Jesus, not the idea of Jesus, but that same child that God promised was crucified, buried, raised, ascended to heaven, and thence He shall come to judge the living and the dead, as our creed says. Christ Himself is the Savior. Have you put your faith in Him? And for those of us who are Christians, uh, I guess this is just a call to keep coming back to Jesus Christ. I find it so easy to get lost. I just, uh, you know, this week, I don't know what it was. Maybe it's that I have four kids now, but something. I just felt numb all week from about like Tuesday on. And I, you know, this is one of those weeks where you try to pray and it doesn't seem like something's clicking and then so you just kind of give up. He's like, eh, whatever. I just, I'm, something's wrong with me. I don't know. And, and you know, it's just, you just have one of those weeks where nothing's really wrong. You just feel far from God. And, and this text is a call, at least for me, just like, come back to Christ. You know, put my faith, get my eyes back on Jesus Christ, the Son. He's the essence of Christianity. So it's a call for us as Christians to walk again closely with Christ, to love Him, to worship Him, to imitate Him, and to trust Him. Let me close with the words of Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite Calvinistic Baptist preachers from the uh, 19th century. This is the words that Charles Spurgeon spoke when he first took the pulpit in Metropolitan Tabernacle in London after his predecessor, Dr. Gill, stepped down. The first things he said when he got into that pulpit is he kind of gave basically his direction for his ministry. And he said these words, I would propose that the subject of ministry in this house, in other words, this church he's coming to, as long as this platform shall stand, and as long as this house shall be frequented by worshipers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. I am never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist. I do not hesitate to take the name Baptist. But if I am asked what my creed is, I reply, it is Jesus Christ. My venerated predecessor, Dr. Gill, that was the guy who was there before Spurgeon, has left a theological heritage admirable and excellent in its way. But the legacy to which I would pin and bind myself forever, God helping me, is Jesus Christ, who is the arm and substance of the gospel, who is in himself all theology, the incarnation of every precious truth. Great words. Amen. our time together this morning the same way we started it. I want to stand together, open your hymnals before you to hymn number 179. I'm just struck after, as we hear this passage in Jeremy's words this morning that uh, we so often see our current circumstance and God sees so much more. He sees 
eternity and everything around that. And uh, we just want to lift up our eyes and worship him who's provided such a way, such a salvation for us. We want to declare together our awesome God again. So let's sing this as we close our time together. After the uh, service, our prayer team is here, and uh, we'd love to pray with you. If you come on up after the service, Vicky's here. And if there's anything we can pray for you for, big or small, just come on up and say, Hey, my name is so-and-so. Could you pray for me uh, for this? And we'd love to do that. And uh, John, would you uh, close the service in prayer? Thank you. Father in heaven, thank you for the many ways that you've revealed yourself to us. You've revealed yourself in Scripture. You've revealed yourself in the world around us. And revealed yourself in our very lives. We just want to give ourselves fully to you, God. Help us to follow you better. Help us to be better servants of you. Help us to worship you throughout the week in everything we're doing. We thank you for this time together. Pray you could bless us as we leave this place. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.